Welcome to Scaling Impact, where we decode how entrepreneurs are harnessing the power of the UN Sustainable Development Goals to create remarkable and impactful businesses that drive transformation on a global and local human scale. We explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders and entrepreneurs can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anderson Manilson, global futurist, EO Sydney impact champion and father, and your co-host with Lisa Andrews for Scaling Impact. Hello and welcome to EO's Scaling Impact podcast. Today we have episode 17, which is about SDG 17, Partnerships for the Goals. And our guest today is a very dear friend of mine, Paul Gordon. Paul is the CEO and Technical Director at Catalyze APAC. He is working extensively with defence, security sectors in Australia, New Zealand, the UK, runs a number of different strategic planning initiatives. My most favourite thing is that he wants to transform the way that the world makes decisions. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Lisa. Wonderful to be here. And that's a mouthful, isn't Did it? Did I get that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's uh, the, the the game we are playing, the game I'm playing and my team are playing is transforming the way the world makes decisions that matter. And the vision that we have is everyone has a say in decisions that matter to them. So, And when we say everyone, we mean everyone. We don't just mean the privileged few. We don't just mean the government. We mean everyone. And we've seen a lot of, you know, recent times, a lot of decisions that have impacted people. People have been at the effect of those decisions. And uh, there's just a better way. The vision for the future is much uh, greater engagement and participation in decision making. That's what I'm up for. So it sounds perfect to use decision science around partnerships for the goals and SDG 17. Can I ask you first, why did you get into decision making and decision science? Oh, that's a tough question because it's such a long time ago. <laughs> it's getting on to 20 years now. So I've been doing this for a long time. I think um, so really the genesis of me getting into this and decision science was a passion for uh, systems, how systems work. My background is in engineering, so I like to look at how things connect together. And then combined with the passion for human beings and the human being part of systems. And in fact, decision science really talks a lot about the relationship between the system, the decision, and the human being, how the humans make decisions. So really that kind of an opportunity to be involved in right this sort of circle at the middle of where the intersection of data and computers and models and, and um, systems and human beings, where the best decisions get made in the middle. I think it was the opportunity to work in that sort of area. And um, uh, I guess to see the impact that has, slightly driven by the sort of impacts of not doing it well. So you know, I, part of the passion comes from when I go through the world and I see how poorly decisions are being made and then the significant impacts of those. I mean, sometimes the impacts are very small. People just dissatisfied with, you know, their decisions in their life, where their careers are taking them, the investments they make, the things that they buy, and then very big impacts with, uh, you know, stakeholders disenfranchised, people upset, um, significant consequences. When I see that going on and I can see so clearly that with decision science in the middle of it and rigorous decision making could make a huge difference to that. It's like, 
I'm I'm not prepared to stand by and just let that happen. So that, I think that's really what pulled me into this as a as a field, um, and probably you know, I guess a lot of us would say we start to get drawn into things that we feel we have something to contribute to. So I just notice where I'm most lit up is when there's a hard decision problem to solve a group of people who don't know how to solve that and my opportunity to bring those people together and to engage in kind of a uh, I guess the chance to see what's possible with a good decision process that people haven't thought is possible before and it's also a good story no one thinks that decision making is something to put your attention on and so when I say well here's actually how decision making works it's like an eye-opener for lots of people so that's that's pretty exciting. I guess we've all got our own internal patterns with decision-making, which you've shared with me and, and helped me find those insights on the way that I make decisions, which was really beneficial. So, uh, you know, I have invited you to speak at all of the programs that we've run this year and a number of different things because it was so profound. Now, I, I will actually put a distinction in there. So we're talking a little bit about, you know, the, the micro decisions and individual and personal level. And then also we're talking about the macro level as well and worldwide decision-making, which is the SDG 17 and partnerships for the goals. And so having that as a lens, we might actually start off with the, the personal decision-making and maybe in our companies and businesses decision-making and then move on to how we can solve all the world's problems later on in the podcast. So I guess, uh, would you like to share with us or can you share with us your framework for decision science and decision-making? Yes, uh, certainly. And I think... Um, uh, I, 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 so I think it's a great place to start because, of course, it's all about humans making decisions and whether it's one human or billions, same things at play. And that's how I guess how I talk about decision making uh, is through, a, um, I guess, a model that we call decision thinking. And the idea of decision thinking is bringing consciousness, bringing structure, bringing collaboration and bringing transparency to decision making. And it's built on four principles and the the, the one of the reasons we distinguish the principles is that no matter where you are in the world of decision making, it's easy to go, oh, maybe what's missing? Oh, I haven't applied this principle. I can then look at applying that principle. So the four principles, very uh, uh, very briefly, are the first principle is have a process for making your decision before you get drawn into the content. Um, and I'll give you a grand a grand example of that. And and uh, this is anecdotal, so um, uh, forgive me. Um, but Brexit, we're all aware of Brexit as a decision that one might say hasn't exactly yielded great outcomes that everyone's um, cheering from the rooftops about. The challenge with Brexit was it started started from content, not process. It started with someone making a stand saying, we're leaving Europe, this is the best thing to do. Then someone else, of course, saying, nonsense, we're staying. So now what you've got is two pieces of content that are fighting with each other and no concept of a process to make the decision as to what the best answer is. So it started with content first. Much better decision-making starts with how are we going to make this decision? So that's the decision process, and then you get into the content. So that's the first principle, process before content. The second principle is academic rigor. And I like to think of academic rigor sometimes looking like this and sometimes looking like this. So it might be the world of uh, decision science and economics and statistics and data science and human science, psychology, sociology. It might be the world of that that you need to bring to bear on a decision, especially a grand challenge decision or a global decision. And it might be simply making sure that when I add up my numbers in my little matrix I've made to decide uh, which thing I want to buy, that I use 
actually valid mathematics, which often doesn't happen. People give numbers to things and then don't respect how those numbers should be used. So academic rigor allows us to stand confidently behind our decisions. So that's the second principle. The third one is active stakeholder participation. And in some respects, this is one of those kind of it's at the crux of uh, particularly the conversation we're going to have today, because what does that mean? Well, it, what it doesn't mean is just doing something and then telling the stakeholders that we've done it and hoping that they like it. It's not stakeholder communication. It's not stakeholder uh, you know, persuasion. It's actually saying, well, if we're going to be making a decision, how can stakeholders participate in that decision? And participation can look like many different things. It doesn't necessarily have to look like they turn up to some big thing. It might mean they review some inputs, they make some commentary, and for them, that's good participation. And of course, active stakeholder participation is one of the best ways to bring diversity to decision making. And diversity is one of the fundamental things that really improves our decision outcomes, because we all know what our own echo chamber sounds like. Uh, and then finally, the fourth principle is intangible and tangible value. And what we mean there is frequently decisions are made based on tangible outcomes only. Yes, this decision will drive the shareholder value for our company by this much. It'll deliver another you know, five points of market return. That's all tangible. And decisions get very easily driven down that path only, completely forgetting that actually there's a world of intangible value that matters to us as stakeholders, as decision makers. An intangible value can look like all sorts of things. It can look at the very individual level, like um, coolness in something I might want to buy. That's a very intangible value. It might look like uh, my own personal growth. That's an intangible value. And then at a much bigger scale, it might look like uh, alignment of with, uh, you know, diversity might be a, uh, an intangible value or um empowerment might be an intangible value or environmental sustainability might be an intangible value. And decisions get made frequently looking too much at the tangible and often ignoring the intangible because it feels a bit hard. But actually, the best decisions get made when we look at the whole spectrum of value. And I would say um, the, the source of most decision upset which might be, you know, buyer's remorse for the individual. It might be, you know, government's been overthrown because they've made poor decisions comes from not really considering the full spectrum of value. There's something that is really important that's missing that's been ignored in a decision process. And then, of course, that comes back to, uh, to bite us later on. So those are the four principles of decision thinking. Brilliant. Thank you. And I've got a lot of new questions because every time we talk, I'm always thinking, what about this? What about that? How many decisions should you actually do this process for each year? Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's a really tough question. I mean, the 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 human being makes, and of course, you know, there's there's lies down lies and statistics, the human being makes about 12 million decisions a year, which is a lot of decisions. And if you said, right, I want a deliberate process for each of those, we probably would make 12 decisions, not 12 million. So it's not everything. And of course, many of those decisions are necessarily entirely automatic. You know, the decision to how I button my shirt is not something I need to think about. So the, the game in thinking about applying this kind of um, approach is to say, well, decisions that matter. Now, what matters? 
yeah, whether I have milk in my coffee probably doesn't really matter, but maybe what I eat for my lunch does matter because I've got a commitment to healthier eating, longevity, all the things that we know make a difference to us. And therefore, I do at least want to have something that has something that supports me in the decision making about my lunch. But we can apply the, those four principles in a decision about your lunch in a couple of minutes. You could say, okay, well, how am I going to decide what to have for my lunch? Well, actually, how I'm going to decide is I'm going to go to the cafe and look at what they've got on offer. And I'm going to look at what they've got on offer and I'm going to think about it through a balance of healthiness, energy and low cost. Okay, that's it. I've now got a process for making my decision and we came up with that in 15 seconds. Um, what can some academic rigor look like? Well, at least I'm going to check when I say healthiness, I'm going to double check what I mean. So let me look at maybe some of the uh, the, the ingredients or maybe look at some of the, the calorie contents or whatever. Okay, so I've got some academic rigor. What does active stakeholder participation look like in a decision about what you have for lunch? Well, the answer might be I'm the only stakeholder. There really isn't anybody else involved in this. So that's straightforward. But actually, it might be, well, maybe I'm going to share my lunch with someone. Maybe there's going to be some leftovers that someone else might want to have. Maybe someone else might get food envy when they see my lunch. So the stakeholders might be people I'm eating my lunch with. They might be my family. And I might just ask them a question, you know, if they've got anything they're particularly interested in for lunch today, just asking them that. That's academic, uh, that's uh, active stakeholder participation. And then intangible and tangible value. Well, you heard that the, the conversation straight away is, well, the tangible bit might be cost. It might be numbers of calories, but the intangible bit is, uh, how's that going to make me feel? And actually, if what I want, actually what I want right now is something that just makes me feel comfortable, then some kind of comfort kind of aspect to it, you know, warm and cozy versus, you know, cold and crispy that might be a consideration of intangible value that drives my decision. So we could use decision thinking in literally a minute to help us be more satisfied with our decision about what we have for lunch. I know it's a little bit trite, but there's a there's an example. That's probably the minimum level um, that you'd be thinking about. And then everywhere from there upwards. Um, one of the reasons the term is decision thinking is it's a way of thinking rather than a, I've now got to stop myself and go, okay, what do I do next? Actually, the more you practice it, the more it just becomes naturally how you think about decisions. Beautiful. Thinking and acting. And so now let's relate it to the SDGs and for the majority of our audience are business owners. And we're looking to encourage them to take more action in line with the SDGs. How do you see that businesses could implement a way of thinking or decision thinking in the impact space? Great question and, and something that uh, lights me up frequently, the conversation, because let's start with the counterfactual. What has people not do that? What has you know businesses continue on the train that they're continuing on without having some of the impacts they could have? Um, one of the reasons is it feels like it's too hard or there's a perception that the trade-offs are too great. If I'm going to do something that has wider impact than, let's say, simply generating shareholder return, well, I've got to give up my shareholder return to get that. That trade-off isn't worth it. I'm not going to bother. So that's that's the sort of area where we see why there isn't more impact being had. So if I now say, well, what's what's how would I address that in the world or how am I addressing that? How are we addressing that in the world of decision thinking? It's start to say, well, firstly, you want to actually get 
present to, be conscious of what those trade-offs are before you even start, before you even write the thing off and say, we can't do that. Um, and often if we if we just look in the realm, uh, sorry, look, I don't want to diminish it. If we look solely in the realm of impact, so ESG uh, contribution, we know that there are trade-offs of I might need to spend some more money to improve the environmental performance of my plant, let's say. Let's say if I've got some kind of business that has plant, I know I'm going to spend some money to improve the environmental um, performance of that. There's a trade-off between the investment and then the environmental output. And the investment, of course, then ties directly to my business performance, my profitability. Do I really want to take make that trade-off or not? Well, decision thinking says, let's at least make that trade-off consciously. Let's actually understand what is the investment and what is that environmental return. So as soon as we start to bring some structure to our decision making, we can first and foremost say, let's be conscious of all these trade-offs, now at least have a basis for making those trade-offs, and then good decision process will be the basis. Um, another thing is, is, and I guess um, back to my comment about intangible and tangible value, one of the things that leads to such dissatisfaction in decision making is we make some decisions, someone says, actually, it's too expensive, we're not going to do it, we'll keep running away with our inefficient plant or our plant that's burning fossil fuels or whatever. Yet why is the company feeling not so good about itself? Why are staff not engaging so strongly? Why are uh, customers kind of maybe looking elsewhere, pushing us harder on price? Well, one of the reasons might be because they know we've made a decision that actually making more profit is more valuable to us than perhaps having an environmental impact. And, and so being visible of that intangible, tangible trade-off and what our stakeholders now think and therefore the impact it has on them can start to help us say, well, actually, I can make maybe more conscious decisions here. So a good decision framework will bring all those things together and they need to be... Um, and I, I guess this is the point I, I need to get myself off track and making. <laughs> I'm good at that. Is um, is that the it's the things that matter to us and our stakeholders that we need to allow for in our decision making. Now, it's okay if an organisation says, "Yeah, frankly, impact whatever. That's for somebody else to deal with. My job is just here to make the best widget for the lowest price and make a ton of money." That's okay if that's a conscious choice and that's what they're doing. Now, we know that's not our commitment, but that might be their commitment and that's fine. And in fact, actually, if you take that organization and then try and make them make decisions that deliver better impact, they're probably going to be dissatisfied and probably they might not do what they do anymore. So that might not be helpful. The counterfactual is really what we're interested in, which is where there is, I actually care about this impact. I don't know how to support it and make it. Each time I think about a decision that might lead that way, I get driven against you know, the financial outcomes, that's that's really where the opportunity is, is to be able to engage all of the stakeholders, the ones who might say, you know, what's going on here, and into a structured process that allows for those trade-offs to be made and to start to say, actually, if I, if I really do address the environmental footprint of my plant, uh, and I, okay, prepared to make a greater level of investment, knowing I'm making that trade-off consciously means I can operate soundly with it, I can plan for it, and off we go. And I think that's that's going to that is the key to really uh, addressing these things. Now we also know um, part of the key is you know many organisations don't want to be the first. What they want to be is they want to see what's happening and then 
I don't want to say jump on the bandwagon, but at least follow suit or follow someone else's lead. So when uh, huge institutional investors like BlackRock say, we are no longer interested in only investing in companies that make money, we need them to have purpose. When some an icon like that says that, that then starts to drive new behaviors where people say, well, actually, it's not just about someone's waving a stick at us. There's a reason for that. <laughs> the reason is actually it matters to to run our business for some purpose. And that purpose, you know, all the research knows that we as human beings, when we, you know, at the end of our lives and say, you know, what would you have done more of? No one ever says I would have worked harder or I would have made more money. They always say I would have made more of a difference. And so, you know, we actually know at our at our core that opportunity to make a difference is there. It's just often too hard or the structural things we have around our businesses don't allow us to do that. And decision-making can be a great, of course, I'd say this, but decision-making can be a great vehicle for that because it does cause decision to action and then the action in support of turning out those more intangible things. And that's where things like the SDGs or the, the SDGs specifically are a great place to look because in some respects, they're highly intangible. They're very tangible. If you actually look at what's behind the goals, we know there's all these clear measures, but the concept is pretty intangible, but actually the impact it can have, it will make a huge difference. Yeah, I'd love to shift and, and talk a little bit about EO members and how we can have partnerships for the goals and then go to the macro level as well with governments and international frameworks. And I was a participant in the United Nations day that was put together in New York um, at the UN office, which was fantastic. And we had a number of business owners there from EO come together and we chose a few of the goals and came up with some collaborations on what we could do. And one of them was around trees and planting trees. And the other one was around e-ocean, which is run by the lovely Francisco Azali from the Sydney chapter. And so um, those type of collaborations, and I think it's the opportunity to do that and knowing that we're a community of over, I think it's 16,000 members worldwide. Do you have any actions or do you have any ways that you can see that ERO members, and um, just to highlight as well, you're the comms chair, for EO Sydney in on the board so you know what are your what are your actions or you know advice on actions people could take as EO members in this space I think so and and you know I'll, I'll answer the question from my lens of decision making because I think the, the 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 most helpful thing we can do in collaboration is is to make collaborative decisions that we all then subscribe to the outcomes for. Because the challenge with, you know, the challenge with collaboration is it can look a bit like, well, it's me doing you a bit of a favor. I'm supporting the thing that you care about. And, you know, ultimately that can lead to quite a bit of dissatisfaction unless there's a quid pro quo. And that's not really what we're talking about here. We're looking at trying to work together for some greater good. So for me, what we want is to, and, and, in decision thinking, we'd say, well, let's agree together what those, let's say, intangible outcomes are that we all subscribe to caring about. Yeah, we really do care about clean water for everyone. Yeah, we actually care about that. Okay, now the actions we can all take might be different, but if we at least know that's that's a thing that we care about, and even in our own decisions in our own businesses, we start to make decisions consistent with turning out that result, now we're going to have a much greater leverage effect because we've all said, yeah, we com we commit to that. And then the collaboration also allows for, well, I'm going to do this thing. Do you want to jump on board with me? Yes, because it's in, in the same direction that we've all said we're headed for. So what I'd say, I guess actions to take would be to 
a, a get together. So these sub communities, things like eOcean, are great because it's a it's a specific sub community of a certain level of interest. We know people are passionate about what can I do about that, and often paralysed in I don't know the action I can take. Plus, of course, the human condition called well, my action's only a bit little. Does it really count? Maybe I won't bother. And what we always know, of course, is tiny little incremental actions will make the biggest difference. So. Um, so there's a get together in sub communities, have that sub community, have a very clear, here's the value that we're out to impact on the world. We're all lined up behind that value and then have individuals go back and look at what they're doing and make decisions through that common lens that we as the community, as the sub community say are the values. That, that's what I'd say, because then it gives people an access to taking action that turns out the big result, but it's taking action that's also consistent with who they are. Again, action will get taken when it's easy action to take that turns out the big result rather than us having to turn our ship around. Does has that kind of answered your question? It does. It does. And I think it's just the more we encourage action and I think it's getting a lot easier now that more people are on the internet and working online and through Zoom. So certainly encouraging to think about the outcome. If you think about the way that, you know, clean water, for an example, or even world hunger, we know that a billion people go to bed with food insecurity every night, and yet 30% of the world's food is wasted. So it's not a food problem, it's a distribution problem. And I think those things um, certainly rallying around a goal and deciding a process, and it's, um, it's very cool to be able to think of how we can actually do that and have an impact through EO. Mm, definitely. And, and I think just hearing you say that, I think exactly that relating the macro decision called how do we end world hunger, what does that look like? making sure that the micro decisions I'm making are consistent with that. So that that alignment between decision-making up here and decision-making down here is what's going to make a difference. It's almost like those 12 million decisions that the framework around it and consciously making 12 could make a huge difference in that and it's our collective action that makes the biggest difference. And I know that you're big on moonshots as well. It'd be interesting to have all the EO members dedicated and um, and I guess announce and share what their moonshot is so that you could actually group together what those moonshots are because I'm sure there's a number of partnerships in that, which I think Web3 technology will help do as well, but we won't go into Web3 today because we've still got stats around SDG number 17. And so let's let's think about some of those stats for SDG number 17 and, um, you know, I was even just looking around um, the sub-targets um, 17.1 is strengthen domestic resource mobilization, including through international support to developing countries to improve domestic capacity for tax and other revenue collection. And, you know, I sort of think about these big ones. Am I allowed to ask you about the work that you do with the governments? And are you allowed to share how the decision process works with some of these things that relate to the SDGs? Yes, yeah, you are, and I'll, and I'll, I'll, as, as of course you know, and for um, everyone watching this, um, you know, will know of course the necessarily some of the work that we do with the government has to be behind closed doors, um, but I can talk in general terms, and 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 I'll, I can perhaps mention one or two uh, specific things. Um, uh, so. We work a lot with the federal government trying to make decisions, at, at, certainly at the Australia-wide level, and the same in New Zealand. I have a New Zealand office. We have similar work at the New Zealand-wide level. And um, decisions such as uh, in New Zealand, what is the future of the science and technology system so that New Zealand can go after these big issues as a nation? So New Zealand can say, actually, climate change for us as a country 
A, it's something that matters to us and is impacting us as a country, and B, it's something that matters on a global scale that we can contribute to. So how would we say that as a top research priority for the whole of New Zealand such that we can then align the research and science and innovation system behind that to, to pursue that? And so the work we're doing there with the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment in New Zealand is it's what they're calling their Future Pathways Project. Their big paper got published about three weeks ago, and we're helping them build the decision systems that sit behind that to say, well, how do you engage an entire research, science and innovation system that includes, of course, all the academic institutions, the, the Crown Research age, uh, Entities, um, private um, sector. How do you do that? And so that's a, a really good example of New Zealand as a government saying, what's going to work for us is to have a set of very clearly defined at the top level priorities for research, for science and innovation, and then make sure that right down in the detail, this study I'm doing on gene mutation in whatever it might be, connects up to that. So however esoteric it might be, and we know the world of science particularly needs to have that sort of esoteric dimension and that blue sky perspective, what we want to do is line it up and see, okay, the contribution it's making back up to impacting climate change is something that we as a nation care about. So that that's one, one example. Um, another example uh, is the work we've been doing with the Australian Antarctic Division. So looking at Antarctica as a... Um, of course, an, an amazing resource, an amazing uh, location, and um, you know one of the things that uh, uh, that we know is uh, there's an opportunity to um, create what they're calling a million year ice core. So drill far enough down through the ice, and what you will see is a history of a million years of of the development of the planet. So of course that can tell you a lot from looking backwards, looking forward. What happened to climate change in the past? What happened with, <clears throat> excuse me, events that we can learn from, from that particular ice core? So the kind of work we're doing there, decision-making, of course, is, well, that's a, you know, there's a lot that happens for an activity like that to go ahead. Decisions need to be made around that. We want to make those decisions well in the conscience of all other trade-offs and impacts. And that's the sort of where, you know, where we can help our decision processes help. Um, other areas are looking at, uh, and I won't talk specifics, but other areas are looking at, well, as the government needs to, you know, a lever the government has, of course, is money that it can provide to certain areas to help maybe reset the balance in certain areas. And that's a tricky thing to do because, uh, well, what does resetting the balance look like? What does it look like for whom and to what extent? And particularly in Australia, our First Nations peoples, we know there's a lot of imbalance in, uh, you know, inequity in in outcomes for them, social outcomes, health outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. And the challenge there is, well, how do we make some trade-offs of if we're going to invest here, that means we're not going to invest over here. What does that trade-off look like? And critical there is the engagement of those people impacted. But like I said, excuse me, my active stakeholder participation conversation, it looks like being able to be able to participate in things that are going to help you as one of these, uh, let's say, inequitably treated populations. And it's, it's you know, it's a Australia-wide problem, but of course, what we learn from how to make those decisions to really deliver those outcomes is, of course, highly applicable at a global scale. And the the challenge, the interesting challenge there, of course, is historically, and I'm making no comment about uh, the government, but just in general, historically, the decisions about what to do 
for the advantage few to support the disadvantaged many have been made by the advantage few with the advantage few's perspective on what the disadvantaged many need. And that's the breakdown because, of course, you know, it's not really who are you to tell us what to do, but it is, well, you're operating from a certain context, a certain perspective and a certain framework that is so diff distant from the context that we're operating from that there is there's just a, a disconnect there. And so our work and our commitment is how you bring that in, into a common conversation where actually the thing that works best, and, and we've seen this in many of our government work, is the mutual learning that happens when you can provide for, well, we're all trying to make a decision about the same thing, so that's good. We're at least looking in the same direction. Now what there is to learn from each other. Well, that okay, I had no idea that was a value to you or important to you. We didn't think that. But actually, now we've heard that, we can see why. Here's how that fits together into a decision process. So we're doing work like that, really helping how the government can help in reducing some of those inequities or addressing where there is um, uh, you know, investment or support required, making sure it's done in a way that actually turns the outcome rather than is just a way of spending the money, which is the, you know, the last thing that we need. Um, I'm just trying to think what else I might be able to share. <laughs> Hopefully that gives you a sense of it. I want to add on to there because I think there's a, a saying that I absolutely love at the moment and it's nothing about us without us. And so, you know, you're talking about minorities sort of making decisions for the um, for majority or for, you know, people who are actually disadvantaged and um, the conversations we've had just now is within a country and, well, I guess Antarctica is external as well and you think about developing nations and I was just in Cape Town recently and social tourism is actually frowned upon. People go in and they think that they want to make a difference and then they're there for a couple of days and then they leave. A lot of people actually care and they want to make a difference. And so I think that's where the partnerships and collaborations are so important. How do you actually have conversations? And that's an action for people who are listening today is to think about those um, active stakeholder participation. Who are your stakeholders? Are you making any decisions on behalf of minorities or with you know having that um, something about us without us kind of decision making, which you know I see that shifting into the future, which would be very nice. So I'm going to lead into now, what do you see the biggest trends that will happen in the next 10 years towards the SDGs? I know on your lovely um, vision board behind you there, you've got 2030 as a goal. That's uh, less than eight years away. Yes. <laughs> it's coming. It's, it wasn't my 10-year moonshot two years ago. That's right. It's, it's coming closer. Um, I think the um, – and again, of course, I'm going to say this through, through in my world, I think – the biggest trend, and actually, it's I'm, I'm really seeing it right now in the commercial sector, which is great because, you know, if we if we listen to the work of Buckminster Fuller, he would say, well, a, a, a you pointed out too that the main challenges of the planet are a distribution challenge more than anything else, uh, and so that's a place to look. And the other thing he'll say is the way to address change and have an impact is not really going to be through governments. It's not going to be through this sort of transient thing called our organisational structure. It's going to be through um, through the commercial world where there's a genuine uh, there's a, a very cause and effect of what the commercial world can do. Um, and so the one of the things I'm see we're seeing in the commercial world is a drive to and, and I see this. Is, is kind of expanding rapidly, drive to much more empowered and distributed decision-making. So how can we provide freedom for people to make decisions about themselves, for themselves, within with 
good tools, good decision thinking um, and guidance, but with, with a level of freedom and empowerment so that then when those decisions need ultimately actioning or paying for or whatever, the people who are responsible for saying, here's the check, are full of, yes, let's go, not full of, well, actually, you could, didn't consult me properly. So I think that idea of distributed decision making is really uh, is is moving. It drives much greater efficiency, of course, because you haven't got all this up and down, to and fro, bottleneck dependency on your leadership team to make all your decisions. So we're seeing that happening right now, and I think that the the trends are going to be that's going to happen more and more as people become more able to make their decisions. Uh, to the extent at which, of course, we can have mass decentralized decision making, which is really where the future's the future's coming from. Now, the future's coming from where, <laughs> where we are headed into the future, I think. Um, and and I'm you know I, I fundamentally believe that you know this is one of those places where technology is going to be on our side. It's going to enable it, it enables participation in ways that have never been thought of in the past. Um, you know the the entirely connected planet allows for people to participate in things that are extremely remote from them. And the remoteness has got nothing to do with lack of desire. It's just in the past been a practicality of time and space. A lot of that goes away when we look at communication technology and, and so on. So I think the the big trend for me in the future is how this, decent, this, this distributed decision-making, more empowered decision-making becomes much more decentralized. And um, provides for a new way of governance of the planet. Um, perhaps I'm getting a bit too grand in my in my thoughts here, but um, I, again, no commentary against the, 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 the work of government and what that requires and, and absolutely it requires. And, and in fact, there's always going to be a level of centralization in everything we do because someone somewhere is setting some rules or parameters or some boundary and that's, 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 that's necessary. The job though is to set those sufficiently that there's plenty of freedom to play in between that means the distribution can happen the distribution of power the distribution of decision making the distribution of resources can happen without all the constraints called we have to do all this up and down decision making so um you know when i literally say my vision is a world where everyone has a say in decisions that matter to them that is the vision that i have i can see that happening where the decisions that you know in our let's say, wonderfully privileged first world environment, the decisions about how, whether our city gets locked down in a global pandemic are something that we can have a say in rather than them being imposed upon us. And the decision about someone in a third world country and their ability to feed themselves is something they can have a say in. I, I can see that happening. And for me, of course, the heart of that is how we think about decision making, how we engage in it. Brilliant. And action for everybody. Paul and I had a conversation. There's a webinar called the 25 million stakeholder decision, and it's on our future by design series. And it's around how uh, 25 million people, the population of Australia could actually be involved in making one decision. So highly recommend people check that out and listen to that. We are getting close to time, so I'm going to uh, get you ready for some quick fire questions. And we've borrowed for Tim Ferriss. Paul, are you ready? I'm ready. Who knows what the answers are, but we'll go. <laughs> what is a book or books that you've given most as a gift and why? That's really easy. In fact, the book I've given most as a gift and why is my book, Our Decisions Are Made Easy. And I've given it most as a gift because, in fact, the writing of it allowed me to download some of my brain into something that I can now just give to anyone. And I love the pleasure of giving someone a book. Brilliant. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting a message out to millions or billions, what would it say and why? 
oh my goodness, what would it say? A billboard getting a gigantic message out to any millions and billions. Um, it would say decision-making is a thing. What advice would you give a smart, driven college student about to enter the real world? And what advice should they ignore? I'll answer the question in reverse. The advice they should ignore is there is anywhere to get to or any specific thing to achieve. So anyone giving them advice saying they'll only make it when they get to this position, that role, they should ignore that advice. And the advice I would give them is um, they are the masters of their own destiny and that means being responsible for their actions. Brilliant. And final question, do you have anything that you'd like to leave our audience with today? Yes. (laughs) Apart from that, you already gave me that, (laughs) the the sneaky plug. Um, But yes, uh, what I'd, I guess, leave the audience with is um, making an impact is uh, something that we all care about. And it is possible to have that impact as long as we can start to line our decision-making up to align with that impact. And the best way is to do that in collaboration with others. So find other people who are committed to the same thing as you and then look at how what you can do together can be done from yourself for your own lined-up decision-making. Alignment of decision-making for global impact. That's it. Lovely. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing with our audience how they can scale their impact. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Lisa. Great day. Thank you for tuning in to Scaling Impact. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcatcher and we'd be super grateful if you leave us a great review. For more information about Scaling Impact, the Entrepreneurs' Organization, or our work on sustainable innovation, please check out EO Sydney online. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on Scaling Impact can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.